Now, we're in a series, and that series is entitled Broken World. This is the third week in the series. It's the culmination. The first two weeks, we've said this. We want to, to know how to think. That was the point of the first two weeks. How do we think about a broken world? This week is going to be about what we do as a result, but how we think. If we don't think biblically about sin, then we are not going to relate rightly to God, is what we said in the first couple of weeks. If we don't understand what sin is, where it comes from, then we're not going to think about God properly. We're not going to relate to God rightly. If we think that God somehow or another is impotent and he really wants all the bad things to go away, but he really can't do anything about it, then we're going to have a wrong view of God. If we think God is an ogre and he delights in just punishing, he he loves it, then we're not going to relate rightly to God. What we have is a compassionate Savior. A God who looked at the plight of man. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And he saw that to leave us in our condition would not do his heart any good. Now, I don't say that because God needs us. He doesn't. He doesn't need us for any glory. He doesn't need us for any joy. He doesn't need us for any of his own satisfaction. But because he is who he is, he did not want us to remain in our condition. So Jesus stepped out of heaven came to earth and did everything that was necessary to make us right with God. And all who come to God by faith through the person of Jesus Christ can now rightly relate to God. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. He both draws alongside of us and weeps when we weep, but then he also does something about the brokenness. Now, today. Today is... We're going to use one illustration throughout the entirety of this service in order that we might see the grand principle in the scriptures. We live in a broken world, but we must trust a perfect king. Here is the one illustration. In 1973, a landmark decision came about through our court systems in America. It was called Roe versus Wade. It's a Supreme Court decision. When I say it was a landmark decision, It literally ripples all throughout the country. Now, we have always been divided as a country. If you don't believe that, please go back and study history. Go back and just look at people who walk out in the streets and then fire guns at one another after walking paces away over minor things. This right here brought a divide, brought to the light a divide um, that uh, that was stark. And it was those who wanted to maintain the right to have an abortion at any time and those that said, we don't want there to be that right given to any person because we believe this is a human being and no one has the right to take the life of another whenever they just so choose to do it. For many in the church across America, it seemed as though all hope was lost. It seemed as though it might even be the final straw in what many in the church were saying is the decay of America, the decline of America, as we have slipped into this phase of life, this place of life, where we now say it's okay to just kill whenever you decide you want to kill. That's an oversimplification. But many in the church felt, felt that to be true. There was something that happened, though, almost immediately after this decision was given in the United States that not many people knew about. It happened in the same year. There was a group of ladies who gathered together to pray. And they prayed, and they prayed, 
And they prayed, and they continued to gather together to pray, and it got formalized. And prayer began to happen specifically saying, God, would you do something about this in our country? A, we want the law to be turned around, that's part of it, but B, we want the hearts of people to be turned around so that the people would want the law to be turned around. Please hear me in this. James tells us in his book, the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Do not be misled. He is not saying that you in and of yourself are righteous. And so if you live a really good life and you try really hard, you say no to sin and yes to righteousness, then your prayers are really going to be effective. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that anyone who understands that I have no righteousness in and of myself, all of my hope goes to Jesus because his life is now credited to me as if I lived that life. Someone who comes to him surrendering the controls of their life, that person is declared as a righteous person. The prayers of the righteous person, the person who puts faith and hope in Jesus, are powerful and effective. Why? Because our language is so good? Because we figured out how to do this prayer thing? No, because the person to whom we are praying is all-powerful. Your prayers are powerful, not because of you, not because of your behavior, but because of the righteousness of Jesus and the power of the Almighty God. So let me ask you this question. Why are you not praying more? Hear me. Never underestimate the power of the prayers of righteous people. Never underestimate the power of the prayers of righteous people. Never underestimate the power of the prayers of righteous people. So when it was dark in 1973, some ladies gathered and said, we know a God who is capable of more. Steam began to build, and I mean that in the best sense of the word. I'm not talking about anger, although that was there as well. But steam began to build, and this movement began to take place. And there was this national day of prayer that would take place where people would gather, and they would assault the throne of grace. Depending upon which president was in office at the time, depending upon what was going on in the senators, etc., there was... A bit of a roller coaster that was ridden by the church. There would be great hope and there would be great depression and hope and depression. Sometimes we would have great faith and belief and sometimes we'd have almost no faith and not believe at all. Remember what Jesus said though, faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. It's not the size of someone's faith that matters, it's the object of one's faith that matters. And so when faith is placed in the person of Jesus and the Godhead and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, incredible things can happen. So as the church was doing this, and understandably so, all along God was sovereignly working behind the scenes in which ways in which the average person could not see. And there were these little laws that were being made, laws that were being developed. In 1992, it was a decision. It was Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in 1992, it looked as though that was a failure for those who are on the life side of the equation. To the average person, they said, oh, 
Yet again, another nail in the coffin. But lawyers all across America said, huh, this is not an utter and complete failure. This actually is a window of opportunity because in that decision, basically what happened was it paved the way for the states to have a little more ability to protect life in their own state laws. It loosed the test. It softened the test. And things like parental notification laws, states can now have a preference. And the term before viability became an important phrase in law. Many lawyers went to work. Many people around the country went to work. These ladies continued praying and more and more people continued to pray. Something else happened in the 80s in particular that you began to see the rise of pregnancy centers all across America. We have some here in our own city of Tallahassee. A woman here in our church is the head of one of them. It is my privilege every year to go and to take part in that banquet, just to play a small role of introducing people. And what takes place in those pregnancy centers are men and women who, who spend their time coming in to counsel, to be, to listen, to cry, to pray, to hope. They are there for the men and women who come in in utter confusion, not knowing what to do with an untimely and an unplanned pregnancy. Now, many of you know this. It is one of my favorite things that has happened in Tallahassee in the last 50 years, even though I've only been here for six. There is Planned Parenthood that has a certain location and this particular pregnancy center, a women's pregnancy center, decided we believe God is calling us to put something right next door to them. And we're going to put a building right next door and over here you have an opportunity to do what Planned Parenthood does. And right over here, here's another option. We want to go and stand right next to hell. And we want to say, we are going on the offense. We are invading your territory. And here's a place of hope that has ministered now to hundreds and hundreds of people. Do you know how many folks just came to faith last year? Almost triple digits. Across America, these pregnancy centers begin to arise and offer another opportunity, another option to women and men who are confused, had not planned on this, had not prepared for it, and now they're saying, now you know what, as a sub-point of that, of those pregnancy centers, one of the things, the other thing that I think was really, really helpful is, man, isn't it great how technology has advanced? And have you seen recently what we're able to do? We're able to put this little thing squirt this juice on a woman's belly, and you got this little thing and it takes pictures inside and they're able to see video and pictures of a living, breathing, heart-beating individual inside the womb of a mother. Just that alone has caused many women to say, oh, it's not just tissue. So, People are praying, laws are being written, and every year more and more laws are being written in the process, and the average person like you and me has no idea what is going on, but God in heaven is sovereignly working behind the scenes. One final thing that I think was a significant contribution was there was a march for life. 
And it kept bringing to the public eye this swelling of people, this growing number of people that are saying, I want to stand up for life. And it became impossible to ignore. And you have highly educated, great thinking people in addition to not very well educated people at all. You have simple folks, uh, sophisticated folks all along in the same road saying, we believe that this is worth bringing it. We're going to march for it. We're going to stand up for it now. All of this was leading to June 24th of 2022. Now, several folks uh, knew that this was going to be coming. There's a lady in our church. The only reason I don't mention the names of both the lady in the pregnancy center and this particular lawyer is just because this is going on television, and I don't want to give them any more headache for people who have ill will for them. (laughs) Talked to a lady in our church here um, earlier on and just said, hey, what do you think is going to happen? She says, I think it's going to get overturned. And she knows because she's talked to the Supreme Court. We had an idea, an inkling that this was going to come about. And and what has been running through my mind um, is this. Regardless of what president was in office, regardless of, of what Supreme Court justice was there, if you look at the numbers, according to the CDC, the number of abortions each year didn't really alter all that much between candidates over the years. But I had to be schooled and understand that that is only one uh, um, um, check mark, one um, um, statistic, whatever that word is, that, that to look at. That there are other factors that are going on. So June 22 of this particular year, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama at our denomination's national conference. I don't find out until later on that the Supreme Court comes out and says that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. We're going to return the rights back to the states to determine what they want to do. I hear it as a report on the radio. Do you know what my response was? I cried. I'm not a particularly emotional guy. I get fired up. I get emotional over really important things like football. I don't cry enough, but I tell you, when I heard that on the radio, I cried, and I'll tell you why, because I've been praying for years, and there's only a handful of subjects that I pray about with, with great tenacity and passion and devotion. And I, I have been praying for years that this would come to be. See, most of you know our story. Judith and I are one of those couples that, for whatever reason, could not get pregnant. And it, had, it was about a five-minute conversation that we had in regards to adoption. And we both determined adoption is a great option for us. God does not call every couple in the church to adopt. God calls every person to take part in, in opportunities for the church to take care of orphans and widows. And whatever that role may be, some give financially, some provide respite care, some, some provide legal services. Everybody has a role to play in some form or fashion, maybe it's foster care, whatever. I, we believe God was calling us to bring children into our home. And I can't tell you all the science. I'm not there. I'm not smart enough. we got other doctors in here that, that can do all that. I can't tell you um, uh, scientifically when life begins. I can just tell you theologically what I really believe the Bible says when life begins. And that is the moment of conception. And at that point, it's a human life. What I can tell you is that there was a mother in Augusta, Georgia, that found out that she was pregnant, and and she found out in a manner that she wasn't prepared for it. It was untimely. And she made her way to a pregnancy center. 
And she had a chance to talk with folks that understood, and they offered zero condemnation. And they offered wise counsel and advice. And they brought her in, and she determined that she wanted to place this child into a home. And along the way, she found out that she was pregnant, not just with one, but she was actually pregnant with two. And she didn't know there was a couple in, in, in Lexington, North Carolina, that on Friday had a discussion to say, hey, we haven't talked specifically about what it is that we want. So, so do we want to tell the agency specifically what we want? And and I didn't tell her, Judith, that I had prayed specifically, God, would you give us twins? And so that afternoon when I came home, I think God's calling us to pray specifically. What, what do you think we should pray for? And she said, I think we should pray for twins. And so on Friday, we prayed for twins. And on Saturday and Sunday and Monday, and I got a call Monday afternoon from this agency that said, hey, we haven't discussed this before, but this birth mother in, in Augusta, Georgia has chosen your profile. But I got to ask you the question, are you okay with adopting twins? Now, some call that good luck. Some call that fortune. I think it was a God who, behind the scenes, when not a whole lot of people knew what was going on, was orchestrating events to bring Dawson and Smith into our home. And Dawson and Smith are 19 years old. And I thank God literally every week for a mother in Columbus, Georgia, who had an untimely pregnancy, who made her way into a pregnancy center and decided, I want to go ahead and give birth. And she placed her hands on their head after birth, blessed them, and then sent them into our arms. I'm so thankful for a mother who found herself pregnant in Atlanta, Georgia. Ethiopian, not fully aware of all of the customs here in America. And because she had made a relationship with another chaplain, decided that when she was pregnant, decided to contact a specific lawyer in town who was a family attorney, family law. And in her office, she had our profile and our profile. She picked it up, said, that's the family. I'm so thankful for a mother in Augusta, Georgia, who drove to the hospital after she had given birth, umbilical still attached, baby in the passenger's seat, drove all the way to the hospital and then reached out to this uh, agency. Uh, this agency then uh, had a relationship with the hospital. And the agency could not find a home for this six-day-old boy. Uh, he, again, born, went to the hospital. At that point, they contacted us six days and said, uh, hey, we can't find a home. Would you guys be willing to adopt? And we said, absolutely. I'm so thankful for a mother in Ethiopia who is a victim of a violent crime and chose to give birth anyway. I'm so thankful for another mother, 300 miles away from her, four months earlier than that, previous to that, who decided she just could not be the parent that this child needed, and so took him what is the equivalent of a fire station for us to place that child. I, I, I am so thankful for, for women who chose to give birth because Judith and I, our lives have been enriched. And six boys have had the opportunity to hear what it is that God Almighty has done on their behalf eternally. I am under no delusions that this decision will take away all abortions. I'm, I'm under no delusions of that. What I am excited about is that you and I have an opportunity as a church to not just be pro-life in a voting booth, 
but to be pro-life in the fullest sense of the word. And now to come alongside of single mothers and to help them raise children without a birth father uh, um, uh, playing a role in their life. Some will choose to place into adoption. We have a chance now to do something now. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 5. It is not going to take long at all to to explain this passage. It's only three verses um, in here. So in honor of God's word, would you stand as we read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. This is Jesus in his sermon. I am convinced he preached the sermon more than one on one occasion. Matthew records this one occasion right here um, in which Jesus preached it, and here's what he says. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You may be seated. This is a very simple passage. It's coming on the end of what has famously become known as the Beatitudes. And it just says this, happy or blessed are people who have a variety of things in their life. If you are persecuted because of your faith, and Jesus says, then blessed are you. If you're going to mourn, you're going to be comforted. If you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be satisfied. Blessed are these. He sets up all these things, and he gets right to the end of it. And now he's going to give what is the absolute heart, hear me, of the Bible. The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. can be summed up with this, love God and love others. That's the great do, if you will, in the scriptures. The heart of the scriptures, many theologians believe, is right here in these three verses. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. I said it that way because it's emphatic in the original language. Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples, not to the crowd at large. He's saying, you, my church, and you only are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Don't leave it up to your your spouse. Don't leave it up to your parent. You're 15 right now. You're trying to figure out what faith looks like. Good. Step out in faith. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, then how shall its saltiness be restored? There are eight different possibilities as to what Jesus is referring to here in salt, but I think... This is thus saith David, but I feel pretty confident on this one. I still may be dead wrong. You study the scriptures. You come to think what you think God is saying. I think he's referring primarily to two two things in reference to salt. Number one, salt is an enhancer of taste, is it not? Doesn't salt bring life to everything? When I eat french fries, which I rarely do anymore, I get the question often from folks, David, would you like a little fry with your salt? I love my salt. All McNeely boys love their salt, and we have the hearts to prove it. We have the blood pressure to prove it. We have the medication to prove it. Salt is good on everything. In the summer times, salt on watermelon was a little slice of heaven. Salt on cantaloupe. Salt is good. It creates 
this sort of, it brings zest, doesn't it? It, it, it? Salt is just good. Does it sound like I have a love affair? Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Salt just creates a thirst. We ought to say, wow, interesting, better, I like it. When they look at your marriage, they ought to say, wow, is that what marriage is supposed to be like? Not perfected, not eternal bliss every day. If you have a marriage of bliss every day, please don't tell me about it. Just obnoxious. Judith and I have said this publicly on many occasions. Look, we have a hard marriage. It's a good marriage. It's a loving marriage. It's filled with joy. It's hard. Judith approaches life on this end of the spectrum, personality, et cetera, all that. I approach life on this end of the spectrum, personality, et cetera. I love being in a crowd of people. If there's a thousand people, I get really excited. Judith gets overwhelmed. The thought of trying to have a conversation, to have a conversation that deep with everyone, I go, yes, great. Judith wants to go to this level of depth with every person. We are so radically different. We approach life so, the only thing we have in common is Jesus. And centered around him, we have a great unified marriage. When we major on things that are outside of Christ, we get in trouble. So people look at our marriage and they say, that's cool? Maybe. It's not a perfect when we. You don't have to have a perfect marriage. You just have to have an honest one. And we tell folks regularly, yeah, when we're walking with Jesus, it's really sweet. And when we're not, it's really not. Salt creates a thirst in there. But the other thing that it does is it slows decay. Please hear me. Salt will never, ever ever, ever prevent decay. It slows the process of decay down. What is the church called to do in the culture? To slow the process of decay. What if the church in 1973 had said, we lost, there's nothing more to do. What if lawyers had not thought, how do we slow the process of decay? What if a group of women had not gathered and said, we've lost the battle. What's the point in praying? What if there were no marches? What if there were no centers that were developed? The church is called to slow the process of decay. Let's put the brakes on a little bit. Let's be a speed bump. Let's show you an alternative, something that is different. Don't ever be surprised if the church chooses to leave an aspect of culture Please don't be shocked that that aspect of culture goes to hell in a handbasket. And the reason it does that in some ways is our fault. Because God has said, you are the salt of the earth. You go on the offense. You get involved in culture. You slow the process. Get in. I will make it all happen. I will empower you. It's my strength. It's my grace. I will do everything that's needed. You just need to show up. Slows the process of decay. It does not completely prevent the process of decay. Chuck Swindoll said this in a great book called Simple Faith. In talking about these two aspects, he said, Shake and shine, don't pour and blind. 
Salt is good, but if you were to open up a Morton's and pour the entire can of Morton's onto one fry, it would be awful. But a little bit is good. Don't feel like you've got to convert the world. Just go in and live a Christian life in front of them, empowered by God. And God is capable of using even you for eternal things. Now, he says, if a salt loses its saltiness, many uh, critics and skeptics have pointed out that salt cannot lose its saltiness. That's our understanding in our day and age. This is not understanding in this day and age in which it was written. The salt that he's talking about here did not get in the same way that we get it today. Um, so it was filled a lot of times with impurities. And so basically um, what would happen is, is it mixed in with other minerals. Um, it would lose in, indeed its uh, ability to flavor things. So when Jesus says if the salt has lost its saltiness, then what good is it used for? Anything? It's going to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Please hear me. Jesus is not saying you're going to lose your salvation if you're not salty. What he's saying is this, you have lost the purpose for which I have kept you here on earth. I've put you here to slow the process of decay. I've put you here to bring flavor to life. I've put you so that the world might stop and pause and think, is there a better way? And if you don't live a Christian life, if you don't walk with God, if you don't surrender your life over to him, if you don't open your mouth, if you don't speak, then you've lost the reason why you're still here. Heaven's coming. Look forward to it. But look at it this way. We got a race to run. And I know you're tired. I am too. I know you're exhausted with what the culture has turned into. I'm exhausted as well. But we got a whole eternity to rest. We got a whole eternity to party. We got a whole eternity to to realize um, there is no sin that's going to impact anything. Right now, let's go to work. Make the most of every opportunity that the Lord has given to you. We are here for but a brief period of time. And you are the salt of the earth. So be salty. Shake and shine. Don't pour and blind. Next, he says, you are the light of the world. And then he says two things about it. It's a city that's on a hill that can't be hidden. And there's a lamp that can't be put under a basket. You are the light of the world. The same word, it's in the emphatic sense again. He's referring to Jesus says about himself, I am the light. We are merely the reflectors of the light. Think of it this way. Jesus is the sun. We are the moon. The moon does not generate light. The moon reflects the light of the sun all throughout so that we at nighttime can look up and go, "Woo! look at that beautiful moon. If it's a full moon, we bark. We go... We are just reflecting what the sun, S-U-N, is doing. That's what the moon does. We reflect what the sun, S-O-N, does. It's the Holy Spirit that brings the power of Jesus. And so he says, you are the light of the world. That's what he means. You're just living out what it is that I've put inside of you. Now he says a city on a hill. What was a city on a hill? It's exactly what you would imagine it is. A small village that was up on a hill. So that when people were traveling at nighttime and the lamps were lit in the people's houses, they could see the light and it could light up the way for their path. Light on a hill shows the way. You following me? You as the church show the way. The way to what? The way primarily to God. When I was a coach, I traveled all over the state of Alabama, which has a, a million small towns. Like if there's three people that are together, they, they declared a town. 
So you go through and you got all these ball games that got to go scout and find out and watch. And the best way to find out where the ball game is going to be played on a Friday night is to drive close to where the city is and just look up and just look for the lights. And if you look for the lights, you will see where the people are going to gather. And the whole town and small towns gather in these places. So you can go to anyone that you want. It lights up the way. That's what we as the church do. We show the way. We show the way to live. We show the way to, to interact. But primarily, we show the way to God. What is the way to God? It's important that we get this. It's not better behavior. The way to God is the person of Jesus. That's what we show people. So this is what's so great about being a Christian, about sharing my faith. Do you realize how little pressure is on me to actually share? I just go, yeah, if you want to see an example of what it's like to be saved by grace, here I am. Let me tell you about Jesus, not about me. It's so easy. So a city on a hill shows the way. A light that's put on a stand that he talks about here was one that was going to be put is to actually expel the darkness. It's to light up the darkness. It's to shine light where the darkness is. Now, I think this has to do primarily with sin. I really do. But the church is called to show a better way. It's called to show the light. Um, this past year in my son's uh, baseball, um, there's a g- gentleman that I would meet with and uh, he uh, says about himself, he is uh, a self-professed uh, agnostic. He uh, doesn't know what he thinks. Um, he thinks there's got to be something out there, but he's just not really sure, et cetera. And he shared this with me uh, one, after, one evening right before the game. Um, <laughs> he's sharing the story. I can't repeat every word in the story, but he's sharing the story. And so, I mean, like every five words that would come out, it was the S word. Just, it's just, and so I'm there behind him, and he realizes some people are looking back at me. And so he says, and it was a Crap. <laughs> he changes it when he sees me. And I said, just be yourself. Does, does somebody ever get convicted just being around you? Do you ever, does somebody ever change their behavior just simply because you're in their presence? It's okay. What you got to get used to is this. It's not really because of you. It's because of the Holy Spirit. And what happens when the church removes itself completely from the culture? Where's the conviction? Where's the model? What if the church in 1973 would have said, it's done? What if we just said, look, because it's law, we're no longer going to think that it's a wrong thing to do, that it violates the heart of God. Here's the beauty of what I want you to see. This is where I just close out our, our time in here. The, the, the purpose of light was that it would light up in clarity, it'd be revealed. Romans 10 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. If you are salt and light, God is going to use you. Listen to this from C.T. Studd. Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Church, we have a unique opportunity. 
We have a unique opportunity that's in front of us right now. I would say as the, in the coming weeks and months, you're going to be hearing more specifically about our ongoing illustration here about how we can be pro-life in the fullest sense of the word. You're going to hear more about that. But I want you to, to dwell on this, think on this. Today, at some point, would you walk away from this and would you talk as a couple if you're married, talk as a family, uh, get some thoughts on your own and ask yourself this question, am I shaking and shining? Now hear me. Your job is simply to say, yes, Lord. I'll do whatever it is that you have called me to do. It is not your job to turn the culture around. It is not your job to convert people, including your own children. It is not your job to change the laws. It's God's job to do all of that. His plan to do that is through you. Because how will they believe unless they're sent? All I want you to do is to say, God, here am I, send me. A woman said, I'll go, Lord, and I'll go run this pregnancy center. I'm not sure I'm gifted enough to do it, but I'll do it. And God has used her so mightily to see who knows how many people have a life-altering, eternal, changing aspect, a part of their life. God has used a single woman in a, in a powerful way to develop a team. She said, I'm not sure that I'm the right person for this job. Do I know enough law? People, will you be the primary one that we want to see this, this, this Roe versus Way overturned? And five years ago, she was hired for that purpose. She said, here am I, Lord. Send me. If I were to bring her up on the stage, you know what she'd say? It ain't me. But she kept making laws. She kept praying. Folks, I, I believe this. Please hear this. When my grandchildren, when they have grandchildren, that generation will look back at the era of Roe v. Wade in America the same way that we look back at chattel slavery in America. I really believe that day is coming. They will look back and say, can you believe that the American people thought it was okay to say, yeah, that may be a human. But they don't have the same rights that we do. And the reason I have great confidence in that is because I see the church stirring right now. And what's going on in our kids and their lives is that they're looking around and saying, our hope is in Jesus. Just shake and shine. And I can't wait to see what God's going to do.